I'm excited to walk through this part of God's word with you today. Can you please join with me once again um, in prayer this morning? Dearly Father, we thank you for this morning. We come here today as, as one body, a broken people that, that you have called your own. A people that are so undeserving of your presence, but you allow us to enter it every day. Lord, I pray that as we seek your face today, that you will help us to apply at least one of these things that we learn to our lives. That we will not just enjoy hearing your word, but that we will all be changed as we leave this place of worship. Let me clearly speak your word today. I thank you for this time. In your son's name, amen. Well, growing up, I rarely got into trouble. Um, I've only been in the back of a police car once. Um, I was before a judge twice, but those stories can be talked about at a later time. The only judges that, if you were to ask me, come to mind um, were Judge Judy, Judge Joe Brown, and Anna Maria Polo from Telemundo. See, my dad was our judge in our house. Uh, my mom would discipline us when, we, when he was at the firehouse. He would, uh, or at a, at a, at a, tr- a wrestling tournament, but usually uh, he would be handing out the punishments for what we did. One day my sister and I were playing kitchen basketball, and uh, what that was was we would take just our Nerf basketball set, set it up in the, on the doorway, and we would just either play horse or play one-on-one. And this particular time, my sister was, uh, or my, my friend was here from school, uh, coming over for school, like the first time he visited. Um, and so we're all playing, we're having fun. And as you know, my sister, she's, um, as I've said before, she would be able to push me around. Uh, she wasn't like a bully our whole lives or anything of that sort. But when she wanted to show that she was the big sister, she definitely could. Those of you who have grown up with, my, with us in the youth group know that she is extremely competitive. Whether it's basketball or the game of mafia, uh, she tends to take things way too far. Well, at this time, I was in sixth grade, and I was getting to the age where I was growing and catching up with my sister uh, in height. And so I was kind of getting a little bit bigger. But the whole time we were playing this game of basketball, she was pushing me down. She was slapping me, hitting me, and I was kind of getting annoyed and embarrassed uh, because also she was not only hitting me and pushing me, but she was embarrassing me with her words, saying how bad I was, all these different things. And so she's pushing me, and we're, I'm, going, I'm getting really upset. And then, out of nowhere, I don't know if it was just years of frustration bent up in me, but I looked at my sister and I lunged to her, and I just pushed her. And then time stopped. <laughs> my sister was off balance. My friend's laughing at me. And my mom's cooking in the corner. And I'm sitting there, looking at this, and thinking to myself, what is this newfound strength that I have? 
See, usually when I would push my sister or try to fight my sister, she would just shrug me off like a fly. But this time, she was off balance. And so time regains focus, and like Spider-Man, after he gets bit by the spider and realizing his newfound abilities, I get excited, and I lunge toward my sister, and I grab her, and I throw her into the corner. And I throw her into the corner again, and I'm pushing her, and then my friend's not laughing anymore, and he's kind of surprised. And I'm pushing her into the corner, pushing her, and then my mom kind of realizes that this is not fun anymore. It's getting a little serious. So with her reaction, she comes and runs and grabs my shoulder, and without thinking, yeah. You see, in my head, I was thinking, what are you doing? Just stop. It's your mom. But my body was just going crazy with this new ability, and I pushed my mom off me, and I ran back to my sister and started pushing her again. And then with my mom and her strength, she grabbed me by the shoulders, dragged me to my room, sat me down, and said the words that I never like to hear. And when she said it, her mouth didn't really open, or her teeth didn't open. She said, just wait until your father gets home. Well, I waited and waited, and finally my dad got home, and he did talk to me, and which led to the discipline that he felt was right and necessary for not only shoving my sister, but also shoving my mom. I may not know, the, you know, and that day I learned that it was probably better for my parents to handle Christina and not me. I may not know the punishment that my sister received that day for making fun of me or causing me to act out in anger, but I needed to trust that my dad would discipline her. A lot of times we try to take uh, situations in our own hands when it's better that we trust God and let him work in those times. We try to play judge and give out punishments without even consulting the true and just judge. As we pick up where Carrie left off two weeks ago, David is on the run. He's had the spear thrown at him a couple times. His best friend's life was also in danger at one time. And now his life is being threatened. See, Saul is coming after him with vengeance. If you've been following the reading plan with, in chapter 21 through 23, again, we're in 1 Samuel, we see Saul's threat become extreme, uh, just very real. David has left and again is on the run from Saul, and David flees to the land of Nob. See, this is where he asks some priests uh, for some bread so that he can be fed. He doesn't tell him the whole truth. He kind of dances around it saying, well, this is why I'm here without Saul's men or Saul's not with me. And the priests are kind of nervous about it, but they give him the bread. Also, David asks for a weapon and they hand him Goliath's sword. So then out of desperation, David goes on the run again and he ends up in the land of Gath. Which sounds familiar because this is where Goliath was from. And David was so desperate at this point that he runs to the very town or city that he killed their fiercest warrior, where his brothers were. 
And we may be thinking, probably not the best idea. And not only does he show up in this town, but he shows up with the sword of Goliath. Well, you can think of what may have happened, and we see from the, the scripture that, that he has been taken, whether he's, in, uh, he's been basically arrested or whatever, just, just he's been taken. And we see David's plan kind of go south. And when they seem to arrest him, he acts like a crazy man. He's riding all over the walls. He's drooling from his beard. He's spitting, and the, the king is kind of looking at him like, you know what, we don't need another crazy person here. Just get him out of here. Just send him out. And so now David runs away, and he runs, and he continues to, uh, and he knows that he needs to keep his parents safe. So the next couple verses, we see David take his parents to Mizpah of Moab. And as a side note, we don't know if David, you know, having Moabite blood makes any difference. But this does provide a reason why Mizpah may have helped David which makes the story of Ruth even more interesting. Because without that blood that he had in him, that Moabite blood, he may not have been able to keep his parents safe. So he leaves them there, and now David has gone to the city of Kaliah, and Saul has been tracking David. And he tracks him to the first place that we spoke about, which was where the priests were. And he confronts these priests. And Saul... um, Sorry. He assumes that they're helping him in a fictitious plan to take the kingdom. And Saul then kills all the priests except for one, which was one of the sons, and he runs away and, and finds David. And so while Saul is slaughtering these priests, David is assuming the kingly responsibility in the city of Kaliah by protecting them from the Philistines. His men didn't really want to help. They, they thought it was kind of crazy to fight against the Philistines, especially with such few amount of men. And David runs to God, and he goes to God, and God tells him twice that you need to protect this city. And so David obeys God, and he's victorious. But then as the messenger gets to David, and David finds out that Saul is coming towards him with 3,000 men to this city, and he's, there, he's going to surround the city, and he's going to get David. He's going to kill David. See, Saul didn't want to take him and put him into trial and do all these different things. Saul wanted David's blood. He just now see the priests being slaughtered because of his feud against David. And so the city of Kali, you would think, would want to protect him for what he just did. But God reveals to David that When Saul comes, they will give him up. And so we see David again acting righteously, obeying God, and yet he is still being treated horribly. So now David flees to the wilderness where he he meets up with Jonathan, and there we see their conversation, and we see a covenant made between them. And Saul finds out exactly where Jonathan is, or I'm sorry, where David is. Saul turns his army, they're going after David, they're going after him, and it says that they are so close to capturing David. But then, a messenger comes to Saul, and he says, the Philistines are attacking, and you need to come and defend them, defend your people. So Saul stops his advance on David, even though he was so close to getting him. 
And yet again, David escapes by the skin of his teeth and by God's mercy. So Saul turns around and he goes to fight the battle. And now we pick up in chapter 24. And as, Sam, or as uh, Saul finishes his fight with the Philistines, we don't see an extra story there. We don't, it kind of just goes straight into his pursuit of David again. You kind of get the sense of, I'm done here, finish the Philistines' fight, I'm going straight after David. We see how he didn't want to stop. He knew how close he'd gotten. So now David has now taken refuge in the wilderness of En Gedi. And En Gedi was the largest desert oasis in Israel. It had four freshwater springs, and it was very fertile. There were animals and there was fruit on this oasis. And so you can see that uh, this would be a, a great place to hide out. This would be, you know, I mean, it wasn't the almost ideal place to live. But there was, God was able to provide through the land. There was also a number of caves in this place and, and a great lookout position. So you can see where Saul was coming in from. You would be able to see it and change your position and leave. Saul would have to search every cave and even then, it would be extremely hard to find him in this place. It was an ideal hiding place. And now David and his 600 men were hiding presumably deep in one of these caves. You had to think, 600 people, it was, this wasn't just a tiny cave. So they are far away from any, where maybe they had to keep a fire so you couldn't see that fire glow. They're deep in that cave so you couldn't, I mean, with 600 men... There's a lot of noises that can come out of them. And so you would have to keep them further down, further back, so nobody can see them, out of eyesight, out of an earshot. And David's there. And all of a sudden, maybe it was a low in a conversation, maybe they were resting for a moment, something changes. They hear movement. Now, it could have been a rock, but it sounded more lifelike than a rock. And it could have been one of the goats that inhabited this oasis. But just to be safe, they go and they stealthily investigate this new presence. And as they're peering over the rocks... And they're climbing quietly to see what has changed the atmosphere. What, has, what is making them feel different about where they're at now? What has changed the environment? They peer over and they see ro- a robe. And as they look further down, they see body armor that looked familiar. And as they keep on looking, they see a guy who is a head taller than any of the men in Israel. And you could imagine the surprise. You could imagine the shock. What is Saul doing here? They're on the run, and all of a sudden they see Saul by himself. The question is, why was Saul there? 
See, Saul was, though he was king, Saul was just like any human. As we all know, when we take long road trips, there's somebody in that car ride whose bodily functions take over. And you're so close to your destination, but they think, they, they open up and they say, we need to stop. And when Saul said he needed to stop, nobody argued. So Saul is in this cave, relieving himself, as it says in 1 Samuel 24. And the men are watching, and they're ready to kill Saul. They're saying, God has delivered him into our hands. They're ecstatic, as we all probably would be. And so the men watch as David is crawling towards Saul. And you can think about it. You can think about them just kind of grabbing each other, like ready just to cheer when David strikes. Kind of like you think of the fans in the Super Bowl. They're at the one-yard line, and you're just, come on, all you got to do is just punch it in, just do it. And as they're watching David get there, you see David, for some reason, cut Saul's robe. And they're like, okay, maybe he's working up to something. Maybe, he, you know, well, we don't understand what David's doing right now, but let's just keep watching. Let's, let's keep waiting. And, and as they look, we, they see David's face just change. They see his face turn into guilt. And he looks like he's just got caught red-handed. And their faces begin to change, just as if you've messed up on that one-yard line and you didn't score. And they get dejected. And they're wondering, why is David coming back? He has Saul in his sights. And David gets back to his men. And they're frustrated. And David didn't want to kill Saul. He could have ended it right there. And his men keep telling him, do it. Kill him. What are you waiting for? And the pressure must have been on David because we think of the bloodshed that has already been spilt. We think of the people that are being hurt by this. But David listens to God and he tells his men... And it says in, in, in 1 Samuel 24 that he persuaded his men. And in other translations, though, it's a little bit stronger. It says that David used violent words to his men. Well, basically, if you want to kill Saul, you're going to have to go through me. And it seems kind of backwards. It seems that Saul has been wanting to kill David so much, why in the world is David protecting him? When David was about to take the kingdom away from Saul, it says that the Spirit of God convicted him and he listened. So Saul finishes up, he gets everything back on, and he goes out, and as he leaves the cave, David rushes out to Saul, and he rushes out of the cave, and he meets him, and in verse 8... David falls on his face and yells, My Lord, the King. And when Saul turns to look, you can imagine the surprise. 
You can imagine the shock that this man that they've been looking for was right behind him the whole time. David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage to Saul. See, the thing is, we look at this and David didn't know how he was going to become king. And, you know, the best option in the cave was to kill him. You know, that would have made it very simple. You're the king next. God has anointed you. And so not only does he not kill Saul, but then he rushes out and gives out his position of where he's at. See, the men could have just left. Saul and his 3,000 men didn't know he was in there. They would have left and gone far away. His men would have been safe. But now you must be thinking about his men who are thinking, first you didn't kill him, and now you're giving our position away? What are you doing? See, David is doing what he's done this whole time. He's putting his complete trust in God's hands that his promise of him being anointed will come true. No matter how wrong Saul was treating him, no matter how much hurt he brought to David and to the people around him, he was not going to take matters into his own hands without God's blessing. David's strength and courage can only come from one thing, and that's from God. He asked Saul, why are you chasing me? Do you see that there's people around it? Me, who wanted me to kill you, and I could have. And he holds up this piece of cloak. He's like, I could have killed you. And Saul turns and looks, and his robe is cut. And you must think the embarrassment of, he was this close to me. He's holding this in, my, in his hand. David yell, tells him, I am no threat to you. In fact, I have done everything that you have asked. I have been obedient to God. But David's job is not to judge. See, David says in verse 15, May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. In verse 16, Saul then replies to, or I'm sorry, verse 17, Saul replies to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil, and you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. Skip down to verse 21, and it says, Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house, And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to his stronghold. See, Saul recognizes the display of of David's righteousness that was only shown through the obedience, through David's obedience to God. See, David's example of restraint is one that we need to follow. And I don't want to seem as though I'm lifting David up and we need to just always look to David as how we need to act. But as I just mentioned, his righteousness is only shown through God working through him. How then, good news, are we showing this type of restraint to those who have hurt us or wronged us in some way? 
How do we respond to those who have hurt members of your family? Whether it's been contractors who have lied and cheated and stolen from you, or people who have broken long-lasting relationships, to people who are continually slandering your name, how do we as a church body show that we are trusting in a just God? When we think of those who are physically being persecuted overseas, do we pray for their repentance or are we praying for their destruction? We live in a very, very selfish culture. We look at those who hurt us and we want to shut them out. We want to take matters in our own hands. We act out of anger instead of looking to God for wisdom. It's not our job to do what we think is right. God, yes, does use to correct our brothers and for discipline to be brought out in the church. But as we see in this story with David, we should just not go off our emotion. When David was about to take the kingdom, the Spirit of God convicted him and he listened. He didn't hear the Spirit tell him. He didn't just feel it and ignore it and just kill Saul. Even though in our minds that would be the right thing to do for everything that he has just done. But the Spirit of God said no. See, we have that same spirit. How do we discern what the spirit is telling us? Like David, we need to be saturated and close to God. David's time in the wilderness was a great time for his spiritual closeness to God to be strengthened. He was depending on God for every single thing when he was in the city of Kaliah to save the city and then to run, the, to run from the city. His, his dependence on God was necessary for him to live. And as we are in communion with God and as we're being saturated in his word, we need to be able to, as Romans 12:2 says, to be transformed so that we can discern his will in every situation. David depended on God's guidance in every decision that he made. See, David was filled with the heartache when he just cut the robe of the king. His men were pleading for him that all the bloodshed could stop. Everything would be done. Everything would be finished. He could stop running. His parents could come home. And the kingdom that God promised him would be his. Do we listen to what God is telling us? See, God has told us how we need to respond to those who hurt us. God has told us how you're supposed to act. He tells us to forgive. And this goes against everything that we're told to do. In Colossians 3.13, it says, If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. In Ephesians 4.32, it says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted." Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And as we think of Matthew 6.14, it says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
Now we, we, think about we think about forgiveness, but we also think about how we get there, and that is how our heart is. When Saul is finally killed, which we'll talk about later on, uh, we see that David actually mourns Saul's death. Then the man who told, who told him that Saul was dead, who executed Saul, David has that man executed for killing his anointed. See, everything that Saul put David through, even through everything that Saul put him through, David still value, valued Saul's life. We have to think where our heart is when the person who harmed us is either judged by God or has come into the same type of heartache. Do we think to ourselves, yes, they got what they deserved. Win. Or, finally, they're in as much pain as I am. I'm excited for that. Thank you, God. Vengeance is truly the Lord's. Or are we saddened by that heartache that they may feel? And do we use that time to bring them back to the Word? Do we use that time to encourage them? Not just celebrate in their sadness, but to mourn with them. To bring them back to who God is. And for those who may not know who and have tasted of God's goodness, do we use that time to evangelize to them? As we're praying for justice, are we harboring hate disguised as seeking justice? Are we praying for correction but secretly desire their destruction? Are we mourning with those who have hurt us and who are experiencing heartache? Are you showing God's love to those who in our eyes don't deserve it? We need to be completely obedient to God so that others may see his righteousness just as Saul saw God's righteousness in David. So that others can experience the forgiveness that we have also experienced. Let us not seek our selfish justice, but show the world that the Lord is the final judge. And he will be the one that will act righteously. We need to preach his name in every circumstance. Showing his love to, again, those who in our eyes do not deserve it, but in God's eyes are precious. We need to value the lives of the people around us so that they may see God. In the back, as you guys leave today, there's going to be these pieces of fabric cut out. And as you're leaving, I would encourage you to take one. Take it as a reminder as maybe someone who has harmed you who has wronged you in some way? Are we trying to take matters into our own hands or are we praying for their repentance? Who would just join with me in a word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father,
We leave here today with hearts that are lifted up to you. I pray that as we interact with the people around us, that we will show our love and grace to those who have hurt us. Let us forgive just as you have forgave us. Let us love as you have loved us. We thank you for your Son. Let us listen to the Spirit and guide our actions. Lord, let us not act emotionally, but look to you for guidance today. In your Son's name, amen.